Hey, FFR listeners. If you love getting to listen in on our convos each week, consider helping us keep bringing our signature brand of feminist pop culture analysis to you by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak. You can get early access, exclusive bonus episodes, participate in AMAs, join our friendly Discord server, and more. That's patreon.com slash femfreak. See you there. Yeah, a corporation might own Black Panther, but it's now ours, right? Like that we have this, it's, it is our collective cultural love of this thing or hatred of this thing or what have you that makes it real and makes it bigger than something that one company can say, I own this. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined by Captains of Industry, Carolyn Pettit. Mwahahaha. <laughs> That's my rich That's person. That's how they sound. Counting my money uh, sound. I'm rich, and I'm rich, and I'm counting my money. That's what I want you to imagine while, while I make that noise. Awesome. Uh, I've got a monocle, a monocle, and a top oh, hat yeah, on. Oh, yeah. Rich people I wear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ebony, do you have a sound you'd like to make as your captain of industry today? I wish I had because I am sitting here like Scrooge McDuck throwing gold coins into the air and like sliding down a mountain of jewels. Perfect. Now that we have that visual, today we're going to be talking about the ways that our media consumption and pop culture fandom are tied in troubling ways to capitalism and the market economy. All right. Yo, everybody. What's up, everybody? Carolyn and I are tired. Well, full disclosure, y'all recorded a podcast episode immediately preceding this that I was not on. So y'all must have really been like getting into it. Ebony, Ebony's hatred of Spider-Man, you know. Oh, uh, <laughs> don't, throw me, don't throw me to the wolves like, like that. Like you're going to be, no, I mean, I mean, she you're going like, to be I the refuse. next, you should be the next villain in the next Spider-Man movie. That's how much you hate Spider-Man. You just want to destroy Spider-Man. Yeah. So, Ebony was like, no fucking yeah. way. I'm not seeing that goddamn movie. Yeah. Yeah, I was so full with it. No, I just, sometimes I'm like, I cannot get to the movie theater. Sure, yeah. You know, this one, I will see it eventually, but I was in no rush to see it, despite thinking Tom Holland is adorable as Spider-Man. Uh, such a good Spider-Man. despite loving um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Huh? He's such a good Spider-Man. He's such a good yeah. Peter Parker. So, I mean, I'll see yeah. it eventually, but, but also, like, y'all didn't need me for that discussion, so happy to moonwalk into the background. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some more pleasant pop culture fandom conversation. <laughs> wow, I don't, I got nothing oh. today, y'all. I need someone to like whisper in Ooh. my ear the words for me. You need you need your person in the ch- you need your Ned. You know, I do. Per- I need my Ned. Yeah. Oh, one thing I didn't even mention that reminds me real quick. One thing I didn't even mention in our Spider-Man convo that I wanted to is it in both movies. Peter ends up with a talking to a female voiced computer assistant. And I'm like, oh. you know, like, what's with the, you know, come on, all the, all the like. Well, that's female... because Tony Stark is a piece of shit. Yeah, what? I mean, well, of course, the fans will go, yeah, but Tony Stark had, what's his face, uh, who became Vision, you know, to Bettany, yeah. Paul Bettany in his ear for, and like, yeah, but still, like, there's a pattern of of AI assistance in real life and in entertainment being female coded and also kind of like 
deferential and I don't know, you know, all that stuff. Because women got to do all that emotional labor, whether we're real or not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, y'all. There is a lot to celebrate about our increasingly diverse mainstream media landscape. Modern audiences can immerse themselves in so many different kinds of compelling stories, stories from which people of color, the disabled, queer people, basically anyone who wasn't middle class, straight and white, had traditionally been excluded. It's a victory of a sort, but it only goes so far. We still have so far to go in terms of representation in our media, but more than that, can we ever really look to corporate media to independently advance the culture in a progressive, meaningful, and sustainable way? How do we ensure mindful engagement with media and demand accountability from the billion-dollar behemoth behind our favorite media properties? So how can we do it? Write in and tell us. <laughs> yeah, we don't Call have any now. answers. Five, five, five. Uh, we yeah, do yeah. not have answers. Operators are standing by. Speak um, for yourself. <laughs> I have answers. Oh, give them to me. Well, <laughs> Or not. No, please. I wasn't, I, okay. Did so you, was I that mean, pause so that I oh, would so give you the answer? Both, Carol and I were both like, awesome. Let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I feel like this is a. We took you seriously. I think this is a particularly timely conversation because so much has been happening lately. Uh, You know, I I think particularly so a few weeks ago, the announcement of, and I'm sorry, I blanking on um, her name, but a a young black woman was announced as having been cast Halle Bailey. Halle uh, Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. As as Ariel in the upcoming like live action, you know, little mermaid uh, film. And, understandably like this news was met with like jubilation and excitement and yet you know there are there are those who i think are rightfully saying things like you know we can't like uh believe that disney cares about these issues we can't like praise them for you know for doing the right thing for the right reasons like they they know that that you know we're at a point where doing something like this is is not going to meaningfully hurt the bottom line it may even help the bottom line on in some sense because it's pulling in maybe viewers who wouldn't otherwise come though obviously there is that segment of the population that's going to be uh upset and angry but but so my frustration as a person who is kind of anti-capitalist and does recognize that like yes we can't um say, oh, thank you, Disney, for, like, being, you know, for, like, being progressive, like, or doing the right thing, Um, but also recognizing that this shit actually matters. Like, you know, as a queer person, sometimes I'll see stuff on Twitter that's, like, from other queer people who are, like, you know, some queer people care too much about, like, mainstream representation. It's like, don't you know that queer filmmakers have been making, like, avant-garde, you know, un- queer films forever? Like, you know, your rep- your representation is out there. It exists. Look to, like, such and such and such and such. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like, queer people should know maybe the history of queer art and know that these films mm-hmm. and, and representations exist. But the reason we care about this is because there's a larger cultural impact you know, a normalization, a meaningful change is aided when representations happen in big mainstream media. You know, we don't have to like that that's the reality. We can have our, I feel conflicted about it, but it is the reality. Like, so I'm always, you know, I'm always sort of torn about these things because I mean, like, I think, I think it's great. Like uh, these things need to happen. Um, but at the same time, like, 
like, yes, that doesn't mean we should go around saying that, you know, oh, I'm going to give all my money to Disney because they did such Mm -hmm. and such because Disney doesn't actually give a fuck, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a really kind of, you know, troubling aspect of, you know, fan celebration of certain media properties, like, say, Captain uh, Marvel or Black Panther or films like that, where the, the implication is because these movies were financially successful, that um, that that's that's part of the justification for why we should do them, right? Like, oh, okay, so they made money, so yeah, we should. Get, and it's like, no, we we need <laughs> better and more nuanced and more varied representations, not simply or not only because it's going to make some company billions of dollars. Um, and conversely, because something is not a market success does not mean that there's not um, an audience for it or that it's not important in some way. But we keep hearing like, you know, like the box office is king, right? And so it becomes um, an excuse and a rationale both to create certain things or to not create other things. And I just, it's, yeah. it's so hard to see a way outside of, you know, this this capitalist mindset where all all creative decisions are ultimately driven by how much money can this make or how much money will this lose? Yeah. I mean, I mean, at Disneyland theme parks, you have employees who are homeless, you know, living in their cars because they can't yeah. afford, you know, Nike scores huge points when they run an ad with, uh, with uh, Colin Kaepernick, which is a fantastic ad and like, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever, or they say, like, we're not going to, we were going to make these shoes with the Betsy Ross flag, but we, you know, Colin told us that's a symbol of racism, so we're not going to do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, and then on Twitter, it's like these explosions of, you know, you know, he, you know, hell yeah, I'm going to, you know, buy another pair of Nike shoes or, you know, whatever, and mocking all the people on the right who are ridiculous and saying, and like, oh, I'm boycotting Nike now. Oh, right. but weren't you already boycotting Nike six months ago? Um, but it's like, but let's, I mean, Nike, like their shoes are made, you know, they pay a pittance to factory workers in like third world countries to make their shoes. Like they're not, you know, a force for good globally. Like yeah, this shit, ma- like doesn't that shit matter the most? Like why aren't they paying their employees uh, a living wage? They're, they're, they pull in billions of dollars. It's, it's disgusting. Like we have to, we have to stay we have to recognize that these things, uh, re- matters of representation and the messages sent by advertising uh, like Nike's absolutely matter. It absolutely matters. But we can't confuse that with um, the companies themselves uh, being like uh, noble or good when, when you know, they when they still uh, perpetuate the same horrible labor practice, exploitative labor practices and things, you know, that they've always uh, relied on. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of feminist frequency, right, the whole beginnings and, you know, continued existence of it is about, you know, promoting this notion that our media, for good or for ill, um, you know, both reflects and shapes culture. But we have, we're in a, a moment these days with our pop culture fandom in which people love to look to these, you know, these corporate 
you know, brands as like models for activism. And I just, you know, you will be left, it's insufficient. You will be, you know, left high and dry if, you know, the way that you get woke is by following Arby's on Twitter or, you know, investing all of your activist energy in how, you know, Disney or Marvel or, you know, whoever um, presents a character to you. I think there's a constant tension for media activists between moral imperatives and financial ones. Mm -hmm. And corporations don't care about morals by law, like literally by law. The only corporations are beholden to their shareholders and they have to make more money each quarter or they're failing. And so by way of that, the only way that we get corporations to make any changes is to put pressure on them financially. And that mm-hmm. can be through PR, right? That like bad PR can hit them in ways that that are financially damning or by like, you know, not buying their product, which I have a lot of feelings about boycotts. Um, but I, as I've been doing this work and actually talking to people who make media, like they always want data driven market-based arguments as to Mm -hmm. why they should have female characters, about why they should have women of color, about why they should have, you know, diversity, for lack of a better word, in their media. And that's been – that is one of the most frustrating things to me because the reality is that they're not going to do anything unless there is a financial benefit to it. Um, Or they could be – and, and those, sorry, the financial benefit could be like they were the first ones to do this thing and they get a lot of praise for it. Um, but for the most part, they don't really want to take these ba- these what they consider to be risks. And so I think that there's this constant tension of like how much do we celebrate the fact that we are now getting female superheroes and, you know, the one movie of Black Panther, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. how how much should we celebrate that stuff? Because it actually does have a very real impact versus um, remembering that these are corporations whose only interest is financial. And I think that the tension of this comes from the fact that like these are creative endeavors at the end of the day. Um, that like we grow attached to these characters, that these stories have meaning to us and they have meaning to us because humans gravitate towards story. Like we, we, we create story out of nothing because that's how our brains operate and work. And the fact that corporations have taken over the storytelling traditions, um, you know, it's not passed down community to community. It's passed down through blockbuster film Mm -hmm. or Netflix or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I, you know, like I, I'm kind of loosely hitting on a lot of different things here, but I think that there's something to be had about like our, I think it's a very complicated space we sit in when we find so much emotional connection and attachment to characters that are created by corporations. Yeah, particularly when, you know, it shapes um, as we know that it does, our perception of real life people. So it's it's wonderful that we have Black Panther, right? It's wonderful that we have um, characters like Captain Marvel or you know Ray from Star Wars. Um, but the the reality is, we are still getting a fairly narrow um, spectrum of of heroes in our mainstream media, such that yeah, we do get you know, more people of color, but it's, you know, able, uh, able-bodied, you know, largely straight, 
um, people of color or, you know, people who are conventionally attractive, you know, so it's still a very like marketable model of, uh, of diversity that, that we're being given. And, you know, we need to, as, as audiences recognize that, you know, as you say, Anita, like it's always for these companies, there is a, there's a company imperative, a brand imperative that trumps whatever individual creators working through that brand may wish to, you know, put out. Uh, something I mentioned on the entertainment news last week, you know, uh, is that as we're recording this, um, it's been, you know, recently announced that um, uh, Lashana Lynch is going to take on the 007 uh, designation in the, I believe, the next Bond film. Um, and it's, I mean, again, like, uh, there's, I can't, I mean, as much as I think, okay, that's a probably a good, exciting thing to do with that franchise and that, that number, which, which historically, you know, has so many associations, like, A, I can't help but be, like, cynical about it and, and say, well, obviously, like, they deemed, and I'm sure they did, you know, all kinds of analysis around this, they deemed that, that such a dramatic uh, 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 decision would generate hype and excitement and pull in viewers rather net overall rather than like the number of viewers mm-hmm. who might be drawn in to see a, a bond film who otherwise wouldn't care is greater than the number of viewers who m- would typically go to a bond film but are going to not go because of of this news like it's a profit it is a profit driven or at least a profit approved kind of decision um yeah, like, and that's because the landscape has changed so much, right? Yeah. That it's not really a risk to do it anymore. Yeah, that like it is, it is a very understandable landscape of there's going to be people who are going to get mad about this, and they're going to like freak out and do the thing that they do, and then everyone else is going to celebrate it. Exactly. Right, um, and also you know the recognition that like there are people who will hate watch things, and newsflash, Disney's does not care if you hate pay fifteen dollars or you love pay fifteen dollars. Yeah. They still got your fifteen dollars. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know I'm I'm interested in this idea of like w- the attachment that we get to these franchises, right? Like that, I don't want to undervalue the fact. So like, you know, I was like, these are creative, this is creative media coming out of a corporate system. Right. And sometimes it really Mm -hmm. feels like a, uh, an algorithm wrote some of these movies, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. very creative factory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so like, and this is not at all to discount the amazing work and talent that are people who are employed in these positions to make these things happen. But I think that there's something complicated around the fact that like we have so much emotional investment and ownership in Spider-Man, in Batman, in, you know, what, whatever it might be in Ray, right? Like from, mm-hmm. from Star, Star, Star Wars. <laughs> Sorry. Uh Oh, <laughs> um, that, you know, like, I understand why we do like I in the same way I have certain characters and certain stories and certain shows that I feel very connected to and attached to like that feeling of when a show ends and you you're like, oh, my God, I've lost my friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like Because it's real and it has real meaning and impact to us. Um, You know, I think we do this work because for those reasons, but it makes it a lot more complicated than, say, 
resistance to capitalism via banks. Like, who the fuck? Mm -hmm. We don't have any emotional attachment to a bank. And we could be like, yeah, Bank of America's fucking evil, full stop. But being like, Disney's evil, full stop, is not the same. Because we're like, they are producing and um, creating these characters and, you know, sort of reanimating, right? Like, bringing back to life these characters that have meant so much to us throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in sort of fan production and fan ownership, which... Right. So like the fans creating media products outside of the corporate structure, whether it is approved or not by the owners, the copyright holders, the people who are like, I haven't seen media that reflects my interest. So I'm going to I'm going to ship characters or I'm going to queer um, like create queer relationships for characters that are not represented in the media otherwise. Um, I, I think there's something really interesting there, right? And the the tension between fans and corporations and like the sometimes corporations are like, okay, we're gonna let fans do this because we know it's right. good for our bottom line. And sometimes they'll be like, well no, we're gonna send out cease and desists mm-hmm. and um and uh copyright claims on on all of these things, right? Like it it's this really complicated tension here. Yeah, I I mean, like Disney, for instance, is famously litigious about Mm -hmm. its intellectual property, right? But I think about things like, I mean, I'm not a uh, huge Harry Potter fan, but I always did love when I would see fan art of like Black Hermione um, or or, or things like that. Um, You know, I'm sitting here in my Keanu Reeves Memorial recording studio looking at all of the Doctor Who memorabilia I have. And yeah, I get what you're saying, Anita. Like, you know, I have invested a significant part of, like I have shaped or my personality has been shaped by my my love for um, this this property, this, this character, these characters. Um, and I show that partially by how I spend my money. And when you really kind of unpack that, it's... It's troubling, you know? It can be really fucked up because we're not talking about me, um, you know, spending money um, for the most part from, like, you know, independent creators who are making fan things. I'm talking about, you know, (coughs) excuse me, you know, licensed memorabilia. Like, how much does it cost to be a fan? That's what it comes down to. Yeah. So, I... Sorry. (laughs) I was. Can uh-huh. I just read a quote that's not related to what you said, and then come back to that? Yes. Um. Sort of going back to fan created ownership. I was reading this article, and they quote an academic in the article. So I'll I'll link the article in the show notes. The article is talking about um sort of fandom taking on uh imagery and making it their own. Uh, and so this is a this is about the Hobbit, but that doesn't matter. Um. So the quote is, the growing disaffection for The Hobbit among existing fans of the wider franchise and among Tolkien enthusiasts in particular might be better understood as simultaneously a protest against growing corporate ownership and control over collective cultural and creative resources by Mm. individuals who claim a stake in the representation and expansion of those shared properties. And I think that that quote very much like distills down this idea of like, yeah, a corporation might own Black Panther, but it's now ours, mm-hmm. right? Like that we have this, it's, it is our collective cultural love of this thing or hatred of this thing or what have you that makes it real and makes it bigger than something that one company can say, I own this. Yeah. 
and but that's such a it's such a double edged sword in some ways, right? Because as we've seen uh, so, so clearly in the past few years, the uh, at times f- f- fan f- feelings of ownership over a property or a universe or you know whatever, just an IP, um, can be quite uh, quite toxic if and when they 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 object to things that are happening with that property for all the wrong reasons, like, you know, like, like Star Wars, right? I mean, yeah, well, uh, so that ownership isn't, um, isn't necessarily, you know, we'll say that, like, if we want to protest the fact that, like, there's a racist representation in the media, in, in the media, we'll say that that's like, good ownership yes. and that if you're like I'm mad that Star Wars has women in it that's like a bad type of ownership or a toxic type of ownership like we're making that right. claim based we- on our positionality because we think that that's right but yes. like regardless the backlash in all of these different ways is all because we feel ownership to corporate properties and and I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is that we that that media is so much more than just a product Right. And that we feel these emotional connections and ownership and attachment to them, but that there's still, but that's what makes it so complicated. And that's why living in capitalism and demanding that corporations reflect to us the communities that we see ourselves in is such a weird, complicated, messy environment to be in. Right. Yeah, God, I I keep thinking about something you started off by saying, Anita, which was like, you know, now that these global corporations have kind of taken on our storytelling tradition, the way in which we understand and participate and immerse ourselves in, you know, cultural mythologies is completely changed. Like, it's not a traveling minstrel popping up in your village every six months, right? You know, spending a couple of nights. <laughs> I know history. I know. <laughs> you can't listen. This is an accurate painting of how things used to be. But you see what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's not as if we have, you know, the griot um, and we're, we're sharing these stories in, you know, small community groupings anymore. We have moved to a point in which I can be watching something or reading something at the exact same time as someone in Burma and having a conversation with them online about it, you know, and just our, our whole way of telling, telling stories to ourselves has changed. And yet in many ways, the, the reality of like corporate ownership of, um, of our stories doesn't acknowledge that it's hard though, you know, because think about, you know, when, um, feminist frequency videos, right? Like we would put out a video and there's a whole economy of dudes who depended on us putting out videos so that they could put out their videos. Right. I mean, they weren't fan videos by any stretch of the imagination, but like the reaction economy, um, you know, this this notion of once you put something out there, you no longer own it and anyone can do anything to it that they desire is also a problem. Yeah. Well, also, like, you know, 
I believe so strongly in fair use as a principle, mm -hmm. as a doctrine, that like I never sent takedowns on the videos that just re-uploaded my videos. Like even mm -hmm. though there was nothing fair use about those or like the people who used our media to attack us, like I never sent takedowns to those people, um, which I probably mm -hmm. maybe should have <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> but <laughs> But like I really do believe that like are like that whether it's corporately owned or not it is now ours to use right like that it is a bigger it is a bigger that pop culture is a language that we all speak now and that we should be allowed the tools of that language so if you want to make a remix or you want to cut together an analysis of whatever like i think it's i don't think that corporations should should single-handedly own you know, the, the rights to a thing or whatever ownership. I don't believe in, in yeah. whatever. I'm not going to go into down that spiral, but <gasps> I do think that like, there's a lot of complication in the fact that like these things are, it's not like, it's not like you made a box and you're trying to sell a box. It's like, you're selling culture. You're literally mm -hmm. selling us culture and forming and shaping our culture. And then saying, no, you can only touch it in very restrictive uh, in very restrictive ways. And you can only intellectually engage with it in very restrictive ways. Like I, I think about how mythology developed, right? Like you would live in a village and the only people, your elders would pass on stories to you. And those mythologies were like, there is a monster in the river so that kids don't go to the river and drown or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. there's, there are, there, there are these stories that are passed down to maintain um, uh, cultural generational relevance and understanding. And I like, in my experience that comes a lot from like learning stories about the Armenian genocide, right? Like how do we maintain those stories? How do I maintain the experiences of my family specifically, not just like largely and keep that within, within us and alive. Right. Mm. Um, but we don't do that as much anymore and now it's yeah. like corporations who are telling us those stories and they control like truth in a lot of ways. They control our mythologies in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, and the oral, like, yeah. what does that mean to us? I know it's, yeah, because it used to be that, the, you know, the oral tradition. Yeah. Oral in traditions. So many, in right. so many That's cultures, right? Like yeah. stories of say King Arthur or whatever, right. Would be passed down from one generation to the next people sitting around campfires and telling stories. And like one storyteller would elaborate and like add their creative like elements to it. And these would just kind of over time become like, part of the the tales as they evolved and yes like everything about how our our collective myths and legends and icons and everything uh are created now is it's all completely not that at all anymore but obviously we as people continue to try to find ways to participate and to to contribute and to leave our own mark on it but um but yes like obviously the 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 corporations that own yeah. and, and trademark all this don't always uh smile on on that kind of participation yeah. and those mythologies hold the values of a culture yes right, right. and so mm -hmm. when corporations are now holding the values of our culture and they have said for decades that women are not heroes Right. Like just for example, yes. it's only recently that we've been like women get to be heroes um, or that women's only value comes from being sexualized or that they can only be strong if they also look a certain way. Right. Like these are all the values that have been 
replaced or that have been like communicated to us through widespread pop culture as the dominant myth-making force in our society. And whatever, you can replace, I'm just talking about mostly white women, um, but like you can replace that with all kinds of whatever the values are, right? So I think the fact that really Netflix led the way in being like, well, let's target niche audiences, <laughs> which I say with some irony here, to 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 be like, there are more people who want to see their stories reflected. And we've now seen the rise of like more representation in the media. But as we opened with like, is it is it worth celebrating? Like, yes, in some ways. Is it enough? No, definitely not. And like the sort of back and forth, the like the the non-linearness of progress in our media. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention the <clears throat> the the pressure um on marginalized communities to support things with our dollars in a way that can feel oppressive and can feel, you know, exploitative when it, you know, comes from a corporation. So there was real, you know, there were real calls to like go see Black Panther, for instance, on opening weekend or Captain Marvel on opening weekend, right? Because if they don't get butts and seats, if it doesn't make enough money, then potentially we'll never have something like that again. And as a viewer, I resent having that held over me while recognizing the reality of the market forces at play here. You know, I, I resent um, being told that my value uh, as a participant and culture is how much money I can bring to the table. And that, you know, if folks from marginalized communities want to have their stories told, they have to demonstrate that it's profitable to a mainstream read white audience. I put a little more stock in those calls for, you know, to, to, to get people to come out for that sort of thing when it's much smaller films like say book smart, you know, right. or, or a, or a, uh, or, um, or, you know, say uh, Moonlight or or uh, Beale Street, like because I, I, I recognize that those films are a, a little more uh, there's more riding on perhaps like they're mm -hmm. smaller mm -hmm. they're, and they're they're yeah. I don't know. But uh, yes, when people are like, come out and see, you know, triple A blockbuster film on opening day, I'm like, I, you know, I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very sad that the merit of art and the value of art is based on if it makes money or not. I mm -hmm. remember years ago, I interned at an art gallery oh, and, um, you know, art galleries are very much made to sell to rich people. Like, and so you choose what kinds of shows or the curators choose what kind of shows they put up in order to try to sell <laughs> pieces of art, right? Um, and I remember this one exhibit we did was very political and not necessarily things that you would want to have sitting in your house. And it didn't sell. It barely sold. So that one, that artist and that gallery ma like made the choice to have this exhibit knowing that they're not going to necessarily recoup on that. And like that always, that was a big reason why I didn't continue in the art world. Cause I was like, well, this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but like, I think about that a lot too, in terms of why, you know, like is, um, is something like book smart or Beale street or whatever, you know, not valuable if it doesn't make money at the box office. 
Right. Well, to the investors who, you know, the producers who put up money for the making of the film, no. And eh, right. And like and like, will there be people who look at the success uh, or failure of a film like Booksmart to decide whether they're going to fund the next quirky indie film about high school, you know, girls, you know, maybe, but. But, and that's and, and yeah. that's the thing too, right? Is it like there are so many things that go into financial success, right? Like in terms of marketing, like actually good, like good marketing in the right communities in the right spaces. Like so, sorry that this is going into like how do you make it be financially successful? But there's also just a lot of um, there's a lot that goes into whether something is given the worth or value. So like talking to game developers for years, like games starring female characters were never given marketing budgets, were never put mm-hmm. out there in the same way that games with male characters were. And then they use that as a sign of failure um, in, in that and, and, and disinterest in those games. Yeah, I mean, and like a film like Booksmart, I don't think did do well at the box office, but it like it is going to have lasting cultural value. I mean, this is a film that is very important to a lot of the young people who saw it, I think, who, you know, like 20 years from now, they'll remember it. They'll probably still, you know, watch the Blu-ray of it once in a while or whatever, like these films or whatever holographic discs or whatever people are watching 20 years from now. Like there is that the, the reality that, of course, there's artistic value and merit to things that are not hugely profitable. I mean, I think a lot of the best writing that happens is not what the marketplace demands, but it's still uh, great writing. You know, it doesn't fall mm-hmm. in line with what with what big publishers want to print and sell or what have you. But in, in like every artistic field, like yes, you can identify that that a lot of the best or most significant art is not going to be the most profitable, um, and that's just all. That's always been the tension too. In 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 art and particularly like mainstream pop art, which is, which is the kind that we at feminist frequency tend to be most concerned with because it's where the biggest potential for cultural impact resides uh, by and mm-hmm. large. So, so did we answer all the questions? Do we solve this problem? We solved it, but Sweet. I would be interested to hear um, from our listeners how they uh, find ways to be ethical consumers, you know, just to check, just to double cross. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cross-reference against uh, my solutions. Yeah. Cool. Let's take a quick break. Hey, Feminist Frequency Radio listeners. Why not join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak? Seriously, what are you waiting for? Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Ebony, would you like to get us started? Uh, sure. Um, still in the same position I've been in for the past month, <laughs> whereby I don't know if I can handle new media, so I've been rereading the Sandman graphic novels. Yeah. Um, yeah, written by uh, Neil Gaiman. I was so obsessed with the death novels and this, Yo, the death comics. Ugh, right. That, that was my right. like little 14 year old goth heart. Yeah. Like I just, it, it immediately put me back into, I mean, I'm uh, 50 years older than you, Anita. So okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a 14 year old, but, but yeah, it just, it took me back to reading these in my, um, 
Well, I mean, I didn't discover them till I was in my 20s. I wasn't, you know, on it when they, they first hit the streets. But anyway, I've, I've just been delighted to be reacquainted with Dream and the Endless. And also um, loving how much, like, I, I didn't pay attention to it at the time. My critical faculties weren't particularly well honed. Um, but just the ways in which the evocation of a very um, affirmative kind of range of identities in the the graphic novels, people of color, queer folks, whatever, blah, blah, like, you know, remembering these are coming out in the early 90s. That was by no means something you could count on um, in, uh, in graphic novels and comics. You know, it well, anywhere, really. So, you know, anyway, it's just loving reconnecting with the Sandman graphic novels. And that's it, babies. Maybe I'll post a photo of me dressed up as death for Halloween. Yo, please <laughs> do. Listeners. Please do. <laughs> it's my, when I don't have a costume, it's my go-to costume because it's Look, so Don't promise it if you're not going to deliver it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, Carol, what are you freaking out about? Uh, I am reading this novel, a very hefty tome indeed, uh, called The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, T-A-R-T-T. And um, Donna Tartt also wrote a novel uh, called The Secret History, which I happened to read like not long after I was out of college, really. And it's very much a college novel. (laughs) And it was just, like, the right book at the right time in my life then, and it really, like, struck a chord with me. Um, And I'm – so I think Donna Tartt is such a magnificent writer. Like, she can evoke the atmosphere of a room like nobody's business. Like, she can really make you feel like you're there, just the way that she can capture the atmosphere of a room. I mean, so The Goldfinch is a really fascinating novel. I'm only, I'm 300 pages into this like 1,000 page book. So I'm like, you know, put a dent in it, but I still have a ways to go. Um, You know, it's like, I'm, I'm a little conflicted about it in the sense that like, like, I think that Donna Tartt is a writer who writes about whiteness, but it, it doesn't know that she's writing about whiteness. Like, her books are so white, um, but not in a sort of self-reflexive way where they're, like, aware that they're very, very white. Um, you know, uh, so I don't know. But but nonetheless, like, the story is uh, utterly fascinating. Um, it, it It deals with grief, and and when she writes about grief, you know, um, and I, it, it, she does it in a way that makes me recall my own experiences of grief. Um, like the main character loses a parent, um, loses their mother, uh, his mother, um, in this like basically in this explosion at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and. Uh, when he's young, he's 13, I believe, when it happens. And, like, the way that he writes about the, the the specific experience of losing a parent and what that does to your mind and heart and, like, how, how it feels so, like, impossible to believe or to accept. And, I mean, is, like, I was reading, I'm like, yeah, no, exactly. Like, that's exactly what it's like sometimes. Um, extraordinary. Like, she's an extraordinary writer. It's a very... It's it's you know it's a very captivating read. Um, um, 
And yeah, it's being turned into a major motion picture. So if you like books specifically that are being that get turned into major motion <laughs> pictures, then you know this is this is the book a for major. you. Not a, just major, a, a major, a major, not a minor. Picture. No, it's now a, it's soon to be soon to be a major motion picture. All right. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So Ebony has put a gun to my head and forced me to watch Ripper Street. <laughs> uh, it was an old timey Victorian gun, but still pop a cap in you. Yeah. 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 Uh, and she wore one of those little hats that the coppers wear. Mm-hmm. Coppers, they call them it's coppers. Amazing I striped have to, pants. I have to. The costuming is fucking great on that show. Yeah. Um. I have to l- watch it with the. I mean, I watch pretty much everything with subtitles on, but especially this one because I, I don't know what they're saying half the time, mm-hmm. and I'm like, huh. Anyways, um, my freakout is not about River Street. I'm also not recommend. I just I have neutral feelings, even though I can't stop watching it. Um, <laughs> but that's only because I'm depressed, not because it's actually good. But anyways, my point is. That we've talked a lot on the show, you know, in like brief spurts about um, police procedurals and like cop shows, um, mostly because Ebony's obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to point out something that bothers me in these shows, which uh, is what Carolyn brought up last week on the Spider Man episode is that. Oftentimes, so one on these shows, you have to have many seasons of like different stories of evil people and then the state solving those crimes, right? And so without fail, there are always a handful of stories about um, people who who are very justifiably been wronged uh, by the state usually, and they have to be stopped in what they're doing by the state, even though... Mm -hmm. The state has wronged them. And so it's really frustrating because the villains, it's it's like there's a right, there's a very clear, proper way of dealing with, um, you know, being a coming back from war uh, and and sacrificing for a country and having no resources when you get home. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to go steal or rob trains or something like that's the wrong way to deal with it. But there's no right way to deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the there's no like there's no other recourse, but it's always framed as like, well, you shouldn't do what's illegal. You should just suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I find that like that particular aspect of how sometimes these kinds of stories and these these sorts of shows frame um, um, frame uh, oppression as like the villain. Or yeah. people who are fighting their own oppression as villainous, and it it reminds me too of of like how like I'll still like get this ha- have this happen on Twitter all the time, where I will call out something that the state has done, like a policy, you know, or for instance, as violence, like you know, like uh, like a policy that inherently dehumanizes trans people is violence, right? But people don't understand it that way or they don't like no violence is you know if you if 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 a trans person were to resist that by going and like punching uh you know a a police officer or something that's violence but the policy itself that dehumanizes the trans person no that's not violence it's like this this reluctance or this the, the way in which the actions of the state whatever their impact however they harm people are 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 never actually by by and large understood to be 
violence, even when that's, you know, exactly in a sense what they are. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Ripper Street, Anita, and I, I get that we disagree on this, but one of the things that I actually did really like about it is that, to my mind, the show was wonderful at, you know, suggesting that the state was completely incapable of bettering anyone's lives. You know, like ultimately Edmund Reed and the Lehman Street crew like are are completely ineffective most of the time. Oh, totally. You know? I and completely so, agree with that. You know, like yeah. I like how the the show did not shy away from from emphasizing just like the brutal grinding down that almost everyone was subject to unless you were absolutely one of the like out of touch elites, right? So if you were a woman, if you were, you know, a working woman, if you were, you know, a person of color, you know, whatever, like there was just, there was no safety net. There was, there was nothing um, keeping you from just like grinding poverty most of the time, except for what you could, you know, scratch out for yourself. And so I feel like... I, I appreciated the fact that the show did not suggest that like, oh, if you simply allow the police to take care of you or allow the state to surveil you or do the you know right thing as a woman and get married or whatever, then your life will be shiny and clean and you'll be safe and whatever. The show, like I watch the show and I get depressed because it's, it's basically just like we are all fucked. Yeah, we it is absolutely fucked. that. Like it definitely has the like the police are coming in to, like, solve the crime, blah, 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 kind of thing. But, but it they're so incompetent, most th of them. Well, yeah, but also, like, <coughs> it, uh, your point is that, like, yes, everyone in everyone is fucked. And that, that's the, the ringing theme throughout mm -hmm. all of the seasons is, like, why would you come back to Whitechapel? Whitechapel is mm -hmm. a dumpster fire. Like, everything and everyone is miserable here all the time. But at the same time, every episode is, like you know, let's solve the problem. And some of the right. appeal, what I realized, because I had just rewatched Veronica Mars. Oh, I guess that mm -hmm. should have been my freak out last week. But I had just rewatched Veronica Mars. And I think some of the appeal of these shows too is like, or at least for me is like, it's the solving of the, it's the solving of a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Like in watching smart people, like detective work is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And every time I watch shows like this, I'm like, could I be a detective? <laughs> 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 Which the answer is no, but I can fantasize about it on my couch. So imagine if Anita was a private investigator. Uh, that is amazing. So good. All right, y'all. <laughs> Enough of that. Let's come back to that in the bonus. Thanks so much for listening to Phonus Frequency Radio. Stay tuned for the freaking after party, only available to backers of this podcast, which you can learn more at patreon.com slash femfreak. If you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at femfreak. The show is engineered by Rob Para. Sarah Norales provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and intro music by Phil Circus. And you can find us everywhere great podcasts are found. That's not the right order. Why hasn't anyone told me that's the wrong order? It's fine. Join us next week <laughs> for another feminist dive into popular culture. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, Bye. workers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs>